You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Continuing our playlist celebrating the release of the government's UAP report, uh, we wanted to share this episode with you, fellow conspiracy realist. One of the big things about UFOs, one of the big uh, subjects of debate, is whether anyone has actually found a physical craft, right? Not just some lights in the sky, not just some shapes that appear to defy the laws of physics. Are there real life flying saucers? One of the big, you know, one of the big theories that surfaces cyclically is that what we call UFOs or what some people, you know, perceive to be UFOs are in fact man-made pieces of technology. So we, we asked ourselves a while back, you know, has anybody built a real life flying saucer? And I think we found one. Let's dive in. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deckant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. 
Uh, we've been doing a lot of shows recently with a check-in at the beginning to make sure we're all in a, a cool or at least tolerable place given the heat outside. So, uh, Matt, how's it how's it going? It's going really well. We're coming right off of Father's Day. I got to spend oh. some time with my son uh, yesterday, in fact. It was wonderful. We went to a waterfall that's nearby. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it was awesome. Uh, and, and happy Father's Day to both of you, belated. Well, thank, thank you, sir. Sure. Uh, Noel, how about you? It's good. I went and visited my ma, and she made me a Father's Day dinner, Lego lamb, which one is of one of favorites. my faves. Yeah. Know, it is. And uh, with a little bit of, uh, what do we have on the side? Oh, some stuffed mushrooms, also yeah. a favorite. And then I got to take my kid to, oh, actually, I went and got a manicure and a pedicure. Mm-hmm. And then I got upsold into getting my eyebrows waxed. That's how so, it works. Yeah, That's man. how they get you. It's kind of a bummer because the pedicure feels so good. And then the the eyebrow waxing really hurts, so it sort of negated the the good feels of the pedicure. I'm you know, honest. I have this thing with my feet, and if anyone ever tried to do anything to my feet like that, like oh, do, do I would uh, kick them in the face. I probably. would, yeah, attack. Yeah, I would have Ooh. to. There's a part where they take this cheese grater thing and just like rub it in the middles of your feet, mm-hmm. and I have to bite my lip really hard to keep from like losing it. God. So uh, we also, in an update behind the curtain here, we'd like to welcome one of our newest producers to the universe of this show, uh, Maya Cole. Thanks for coming, listening in. Got a, got a woo there that you can't hear uh, outside of the studio. Let's also check in with Mission Control. How you doing, man? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Okay. I thought it was a sideways thumb. It for was a for a second. It was oh. middling to good. We're going to call that 75%. How about you, Mr. Uh, Bimbolin? Thanks for asking, man. So we also, no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, things are happening. Yeah. I've uh, been traveling some more and probably have some more travel in the future. Have Excellent. you been out of this, this uh, particular realm? Uh, this particular astral plane. <laughs> really, you're just going to give me the demon laugh and move on, huh? By the way, did no you comment. did you listen to the the recent voicemail episode? Did I? Yeah. No. Okay. All right. I'm well, then sorry, he, guys. He, he hasn't heard the. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, don't worry should, about you know, it. Check it's it out. Fine. Or don't. It's fine. I, I should listen to it. I should. We, we go into a little bit of your lore. Oh boy. Any anything I need to be aware of? You already know all. You're of the all-knowing, all-seeing yeah, eye of Sauron type individuals. What you are? Oh man, that's that's too. That is too kind. I listened to one of the voicemail episodes on Matt and Noel that you did way back in. Is it over a year now, ago now? I think so. Yeah. yeah, and that was really that was really good, and people really seemed to enjoy it. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. Okay. I'll listen to it. Just just know that you were still included. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you so much. And if you want to be included in today's show, you do not have to wait until the show is over. You can simply pause and call us directly with your thoughts, your opinions, your hot takes, as they say on the late night shows. Uh, Just keep it around three minutes or be ready to call back and say, <laughs> and another thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, a hot take should technically be like a verbal tweet kind of thing. So three minutes should be plenty for a hot take. Yeah. Then you're getting into rant territory, exactly. Dennis Miller style. That's not what we're after. Yeah. Although we like a good rant as well. I Sometimes, you know, you get stuck just applying Mardi Gras beads to a basket and you're just like, you know, I need to call like three or four more times. <laughs> Just <laughs> trust me, it, it happens sometimes. It happens. See, so what's that number for anyone who wants to call? It's 1-833-STDWYTK. So we go- chanted like that on purpose. Yes. <laughs> yes, we're ritualizing. So go ahead and drop us a line. Today we are returning to the world of 
unidentified flying objects. Specifically, we're exploring the story of flying saucers, not UFOs in general, mind you, actual flying saucers. For decades, these were some of the most widely reported mysterious aerial phenomena in the Western world. Even today, when you hear someone say the word alien or extraterrestrial or UFO, most people will immediately conjure up an image of a flying saucer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got the whole nine, you got the little, uh, the, the um, not spherical. Yeah, you got the cockpit at the top, maybe glass dome. And then, of course, it's always shooting a tractor beam down over a cow in yeah. an abandoned field at night or somewhere in the Turning Midwest. it inside out, potentially. You know. mm-hmm. Yes. I yes. always have the Mars Attacks version in my head. For oh, yeah. Because that's the classic tropey version. Yeah. Like Tim Burton was obsessed with those kind of old comic mm-hmm. uh, representations of that kind of imagery. The Martians themselves with the big dome, you know, head things and uh, all of that. Yeah. And Mars Attacks, I'm going to say – I still enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I do too. Immensely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a great documentary, right? So, wh- but what are these things, flying saucers? They've been described as a uh, widely misidentified mundane phenomenon. They've been described as little more than uh, collective hysteria, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, our question today is, are they real? And to answer that question, we have to start from the beginning. So here are the facts, why do we call them flying saucers? It's not like anyone nowadays, at least in the U.S. or Canada, uses the phrase saucer to describe the actual little plate upon which one would place a cup or a mug. What would you call it? What would I, what would I call that? A little plate? <laughs> I say it all the way. I really clip the T's. I say little plate or little uh, cup. You have very good diction, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I would be interested to know if any of our British listeners or anyone out in the UK or around that area still uses the phrase oh, saucer. No, they the definitely do. Term. Think about a saucer of milk for a cat. It's certainly in the in the vernacular. That's those are the only two phrases I hear it in though. Yeah. Flying saucer or saucer of milk is the other one. Cup and saucer. They just call it a cup. It's like, it's like it's a set. They come together. It's the cup and then the saucer. Yeah, but are people walking around talking about it though? And Could you please it? pass the saucer? <laughs> well, why? You don't know. You don't pass the saucer because you're passing the cup and it's on the saucer. No, I feel no, very but, strongly about but that. But if someone's, like, so, if someone's like, no, I, that's the thing. No one addresses it as a singular entity. That's you don't, true. You don't hear the word saucer floating around without being attached to <laughs> – a yeah. cup, yeah. Uh, an alien, or a cat. It's basically a glorified drip pan. It's it's made to True. catch the drippings from your tea. Yeah. You know? So presumably, if you're not a total slob, you don't even need a saucer. There you go. I can, what doesn't it depend on the temp? <laughs> okay, this is maybe a different show, but but we call these things flying saucers because of oddly enough skeet shooting. Yeah. Back in uh, 1890 or so, ever since then, flying saucer was used to describe one of those clay pigeons that they shoot off and, you know, Mm -hmm. you fire at and then you high-five each other when you hit one. And that resembles a saucer, a classic UFO shape. Yeah, because the little device that they would – well, either someone would throw them manually or I think as technology advanced, they would have little machines Mm -hmm. that would like, you know, hold them or like with a little arm and kind of lob them. And they'd go – They'd go foop and then smash, right? But it's because they're of a shape that allows them to be thrown with a nice directional velocity, right? Yeah, like a Frisbee. There you go. So for years and years and years and years, this was a term that was kind of slang in the world of uh, clay pigeon shooting. 
But this phrase did not describe UFOs until 1930, and it didn't become popularized until 1947. Uh, in June 24th of 1947, a guy named Kenneth Arnold had this highly publicized UFO sighting, and it resulted in the popularization of the term flying saucer in U.S. newspapers and then later uh, the Anglosphere and then later the world overall. So, so what happened? What made Kenneth Arnold go viral? Or at least what did he see? So what Arnold said was he claimed to have encountered flashes of light and nine different objects flying in some sort of formation, uh, occasionally flipping the way you might think of the drone uh, behavior, hovering. You know, there's Mm -hmm. those drones you can get that will flip upside down like that or do like a 360 loop or whatever like that uh, without moving very far. So he followed them and found that they were traveling at an incredibly high speed um, and consisted of various Shapes. Each each were not. They were not identical. They were not uniform. Eventually, he lost track of them, and uh, he landed, sharing his experience. And word spread, and his account, um, to use the kind of internet parlance, went viral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was as popular for a time as a cat meme is today. So, in uh, in these interviews with the press, I like the point you're raising about. The, the shapes being varied. He described them a couple of different ways in a couple of different interviews. One he called a pie plate and one he said uh, oval in the front, convex in the rear. And what this means is that some editor is lost to history now. And part of the reason this story gained so much public traction is because Arnold was a pilot. You know what I mean? He was – a credible source at the time, right? And still, a pilot is more credible than someone on the ground in a lot of ways because they have simply more experience. Yeah, to mention, like, you, it's it's pretty hard to competently pilot a plane if you're either men- mentally unstable or under the influence of some kind of drugs or alcohol. Mm, it's typically sure. frowned upon in the uh, piloting community. Yes, yes. Well, the biggest thing is just having an understanding of how aircraft function, right? Also I mean, true. That, that's the, the biggest thing. When, when you have a pilot say, these things were flipping around and doing this weird thing and they were oval-shaped and mm-hmm. oblong, it was really strange. Oblong, you say? Uh, but then he goes on in further interviews to, like, describe them even more differently. Right, right. Uh, oval in the front and convex in the rear. So that's sort of like business one. in the front, party in the back? Uh, In UFO parlance, probably. It really depends on whether you're an oval or a convex guy, you know. That's a good point. Uh, He described something as a pie plate. And then later his story changes again. He describes one of the objects as a crescent or flying wing, some as a big flat disc, some as simply saucer-like. And that's where we hit on the etymology here because while Arnold is associated with this term – It was probably some editor lost to history who's responsible for calling it a flying saucer. And for a little while, there was kind of a Pepsi Coke thing going (laughs) on with flying disc versus flying saucer. But flying saucer clearly won out. And we still use the phrase today. Sort of. Yeah. A little bit. But the phrase has kind of gone away or at least been supplanted quite a bit by this – We're going to call it a government-created term because that's what it is, Mm -hmm. unidentified flying object or UFO. Or UFO, as I like to say, and no one else does. Yes. I'm just kidding. I don't say that. These these aren't aliens. 
necessarily. They're not extraterrestrials. They're just something in the sky that people cannot identify. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, it's a weather balloon. I don't know. (laughs) I guess it's unidentified. Well, and we're going to we're going to continue to use the the term UFO here in, mm. in this episode, but it should be noted as we noted uh, not that long ago in an episode, the military has now changed that as they like to change all their phrasing over sure. time to unidentified aerial vehicle. Yes, 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 <laughs> a UAV. Mm. I mean, it's also sort of like that they might call something like that if they something comes up on the radar. They call it a bogey or whatever, but mm-hmm. that's sort of – if it's something they, they don't know the origin of, they can't have eyes on it directly, then that could be considered one of these as well, an unidentified aerial vehicle. That's the problem with the acronym though. There must be – or the initialism. There must be something missing because – Unmanned aerial vehicle is also UAV. Yeah, there you go. Or maybe I'm incorrect. I I know it's something similar to that. But oh, well. yeah, I mean Uncle Sam, governments in general, big fans of abbreviations and initialisms. Today, flying saucers, not just the phrase, the thing has become this genre of overall UFO sightings. And when you look at the world of fiction, flying saucers still – by far, they're running the game. You know, the problem is they're, they're not represented in a serious way. Mars Attacks, spoiler alert, uh, is not, in fact, a documentary. Uh, you can see them in things like sci-fi series like The X-Files, right? They'll use the flying saucer uh, appearance. Uh, you'll, you'll see it depicted in a ton of 1950s, 1960s fiction You know, we're talking Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, and so on. But what if there's more to the story? Is there any truth to tales of actual flying saucers? Not clouds that look like saucers, mind you. Not weird tricks of the light. No atmospheric hijinks or strange ionospheric interference. A real, genuine flying saucer. The answer is yes, there were real flying saucers, and we built them. Don't toy with my emotions, Ben. No, it's true. And we're going to talk about the ones that at least um, we tried to contract out after a word from our sponsor. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Here's where it gets crazy. Enter Project 1794. Uh, and related to this, the Avro Canada VZ9 Avro car. Yes, let's talk about And before we get into that, I have to make a quick edit to what I said earlier. Uh, this is just everyone listening who said, Matt, UAVs are a thing. Ben is absolutely right, and you are wrong. You are correct. It is. Uh, it's not even called unidentified aerial something. It's called unexplained aerial phenomena. So, so that's UAP. Yes. UAP. UAP. <laughs> yeah. U-up. So apologies for everyone who was really frustrated before the break. Uh, let's continue on. Do you think they I, were shaking their fists at their I hope someone called. podcast device? I know. I hope I someone know. called and then they, they got done with their voicemail and they listened through to the rest of the podcast. Uh, it just goes to show you, like, there's so many things in my brain that I feel like I know things about, but mm. I only have bits and pieces. Human condition, my friend. But you know what I do know about? What do you know about? Because it's written down in this awesome outline <laughs> that you created, what's Ben. What's that? What's that? <laughs> it's the story of this guy named John Carver Meadows Frost. And uh, everybody, you know, his friends, they call him Jack. He worked in the uh, aerospace industry for quite a while. And in June of 1947, he started working for this Canadian company called Avro Canada. A-V-R-O, yeah. That's right. And, uh, you know, this dude's all about, uh, you know, dreaming big. He's a big picture guy. That's right. Um, (laughs) And uh, he would, um, he worked in, or he like did this thing that Avro called blue skies research. So like these are, when we say big picture things, ideas that are so close to the edge of what science can do, they're -hmm. they're overlapping or just beyond what is possible. Um, And that's our boy Jack, 1947. He's thinking on the edge. Jackie boy? That's Mm -hmm. right. Old Jack Frost himself. Yes, at Avro Canada, he had already worked on something called the Avro CF-100. This is a a craft that is innovative but not wild-style blue skies research. Blue skies research is stuff like uh, in the world of aviation – an example of something that would be considered experimental would be the Howard Hughes-designed uh, Spruce Goose, the largest plane in history that we know of. Uh, the Spruce Goose? Mm-hmm. Yes. And if you look at pictures of that thing, it's it's enormous. It's it's impractical. I think it's – I've seen it before, I feel like. Is it on display in like San Francisco or It's something? on the West Coast, right? Oh, you know what? It's uh, it's actually the Evergreen Aviation Museum in um, McKin- McMinnville, Oregon. 
Interesting. Nice. Whoa. Well done, McMinnville. Uh, so you can look at pictures of this thing. It's built largely out of wood. He called it the H4 Hercules. It has the name Spruce Goose, uh, which came about as an insult <laughs> from the skeptical press. The world of brainstorming is high risk, high return. But this is the world that Jack wants to live in. So after he's been working on the Avro CF-100, he creates a research team called the Special Projects Group, or SPG. And he, at first, surrounded himself with other people who thought like he did, out of the box. You know what I mean? Mavericks. Mm -hmm. Improvisers. So this... Group, SPG, Special Projects Group, was situated in their main administration building, but then they relocated it to an older structure across from the company headquarters in what was called the Schaefer Building, and their security went through the roof. They had guards everywhere, locked doors, uh, special unique pass cards. They started doing serious stuff. You know what I mean? The days of hanging out in the conference room with a chalkboard were long gone. Nobody can see this chalkboard. Right, right. Now it's all secret chalk. Disappearing chalk? Is that a thing? Yep. I guess all chalk is disappearing if you have an <laughs> eraser. So the SPG operated out of this experimental hangar and they shared space with other secretive Avro project teams. Jack was personally fascinated, along with a lot of other people, by something called vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, also known as VTOL. Those are pretty cool. Can you say VTOL or do we need to say VTOL? I like VTOL. VTOL? VTOL craft. (laughs) Right? There might be somebody named VTOL listening now. And if you are, you know, hello. (laughs) (laughs) So um, uh, for a VTOL aircraft, really think about a helicopter. Um, Especially when you're thinking about taking off and landing. Something that vertically goes up and goes out and then can come back and go down. And you can get out of the thing. Um, And, you know... In the, for these aircraft, the specific ones that Jack is interested in, it's having that ability to take off vertically, but then fly around like an airplane would or a jet sure. would, okay. then come right back and then go back down. It's like the X-Men jet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. With the, That has the rotating turbines, right? right? Which is a really cool feature. Kind of like an Osprey, I believe the craft are called. Yeah. So in the 1950s, the U.S. Air Force was worried about the vulnerability of their bases because of a couple of limiting factors of conventional aircraft, right? Yeah, and then this is something we should talk about. Ben and I were talking about off offline here. Uh, in 1947 is when the U.S. Air Force splits off or is officially split off from the Army, from just – as a as a separate military unit. Uh-huh. And, you know, this is at this point post-World War II, but they've got these bases that are all over the planet at this point. They're, they're pretty isolated. And the Air Force around this time in the 1950s, they're really worried that these – these bases are just going to get destroyed because if you if you imagine looking at one of these bases overhead, like Google Mapsing it or Google Earthing it mm-hmm. uh, back in let's say 1954, um, you're just going to see uh, several huge runways 
and then a bunch of extremely high-value targets just clustered around these runways. Eggs in a single basket. Exactly. And that's aircraft, of course, just sitting around the runways. So they wanted to find a way to reduce either the length and thickness of their runways. So it's not such a like um, if you're flying overhead or nearby mm-hmm. in an enemy vehicle, you can't just go, oh, hey, look, that's a military base and we can wreak havoc on their offensive and defensive capabilities if we attack that thing. Um And they also wanted to – well, so they wanted to either reduce them, make them smaller or just get rid of them completely so you could have basically a a United States Air Force base in the middle of nowhere and Mm. it would be a little more hidden, at least a bit. The other thing they wanted to do is find a way to deploy aircraft uh, faster for both offensive and defensive capabilities. So if your base is being attacked, mm. you can send uh, you can send aircraft up that'll knock down all the other planes that are coming in to attack you, or you can send them off quicker to go attack nearby areas. So reducing scramble time. Exactly. That and, makes sense. And this uh, the the VTOL thing, mm-hmm. just what Jack is interested in. That was one of the proposed solutions. Thing is, this sort of experimentation is, spoiler alert, cartoonishly expensive. It's not uncommon, uh, but it is expensive. And because often these are some of the first people trying to do this kind of thing ever, right? In, yeah. in any kind of any kind of hardware prototyping, uh, often they are prone to failure. And I don't mean like, oh, good lesson learned. I mean, this is a disaster. These people are dead. Why did we lose millions of dollars on this? Remember that episode we did of Ridiculous History, Ben, that was about failed uh, military technology? And one of them was like a hoverboard kind of platform thing that was kind of part of the technology for one of these VTOL jets, right? Mm -hmm. It was the part that lifts the thing up off the ground. But that was literally all these were, and you would control it sort of like a segue by, like, leaning into it or back or sideways. So you looked really silly, and it just was – it was very unwieldy and heavy, and they weren't very good at, like, anything. The flying platform. The flying platforms. It, like – you know, it had this sci-fi space vibe to it where, like, everyone's, like, zipping around on these little discs, you know, like flying yeah. saucers. But they just weren't very functional in a war situation. Yeah, they were more – they were more a rich person's toy, I think, yeah. ultimately. But also – like a segue. Like when we think of when we think of these experiments, let's also remember things like uh, bat bombs. Let's remember things like cyborg cats. That was a real thing. Rocket bullets. Rocket bullets. All yeah. all sorts of stuff. And that's spy the, dolphins. Spy dolphins. And that's not even getting into uh, assassination attempts and equipment. So they know they're in again a high risk, high reward situation. There's something else interesting that happens in society at this time. So flying saucers are experiencing what PR people here in 2019 would call a moment. There is a proliferation of sightings of flying saucers in the West as a whole but across the world. And there is serious concern, not just – it's not just newspaper publishers trying to sell the next – week's edition. It's not just fringe theorists anymore. There are members of the U.S. military who are seriously anxious, concerned, terrified would be a fair word, that Soviet forces may have beaten them to the punch, creating their own top secret VTOL. In other words, creating their own flying saucers. So these folks at the uh, higher echelons of the military and politics are essentially saying, what if all these flying saucer sightings are real? And what if they're, you know, they're not spacemen or something. They're not aliens. They're, you know, well, they would probably say commies or reds or something like that. Yeah. Well, so in in late 1953, 
uh, a group of defense experts took a little visit to Avro, Canada, to view this new thing that was called the CF-100 fighter jet. Because, you know, you don't just need crazy experimental things that might happen. You also need real fighter jets when you're the military. And that's what, yeah, the U.S. Air Force is there just to see that jet. That's important to the story. Yeah. And we'll tell you what happened on their visit after a word from our sponsor. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. And we're back. So midway through the tour, our pal Jack Frost busts in and and hijacks them, essentially. He takes these visitors to the high-security special projects area, and he does a little show-and-tell. He gives them a look at a mock-up of something he calls Project Y2. This is a completely circular, disc-shaped aircraft. Yes, right. And the USAF visitors were pretty impressed by what they saw. They took over funding for the special projects group and gave 750000 American dollars in 1955, which uh, if we inflation calculated that by today's standards, it's a little over $7 million. Pretty crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And the next year, Avro um, decided to commit two and a half million, $1955, to build a prototype. So as you said before, Ben, very expensive to do this kind of out-of-the-box kind of thinking and research. Yeah, yeah. And they but, stu- but the reward could be amazing, right? Yes, yes, could absolutely. Be. Could or, be. Or it could be relegated to the scrap heap of history. It's, it's 
marginally better than gambling. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So this study encompassed a wide variety of possible designs, but they all revolved around this disc shape, this flying saucer shape, leading to something called Project 1794. The goal was to build a supersonic large disc fighter aircraft. So a fighter jet that's also a circle, basically. Yeah. And again, think about this. A flying disc, a flying saucer that engages other aircraft and ground uh, objects. Like, how crazy is that? Again, this is a real thing at this point. So they eventually get to the level where they're doing what's called wind tunnel testing with scale models. So they're studying how these things move through the environment and what little tweaks or big changes they can make to make it less of a disaster. A wind tunnel simulating the conditions of high-speed flight without actually having to reach those speeds? Absolutely. Nail on the head, yeah. They eventually decide that the reasonable estimate for this concept uh, would result in a vehicle that can go Mach 3.5 at 1,000-foot altitudes or 30,000 meters for the rest of the world. This led to something called the Avro car, which is a real thing that you can see today if you want to travel to a museum and check it out. Highly recommended. Jack Frost built this. Kills me. This guy's name is Jack Frost. (laughs) How many jokes? He must have been so cool. He built this uh, as a two-seater personal car kind of concept. So it's much smaller than what they were aiming to build, 1794. And it showed, you know, it meant to, it was a proof of concept. It was meant to show, hey, these things can work. We can actually put people in them. They can take off. They can fly around. They can land. Everybody will be alive. We'll high five each other. Awesome. Go us. And at the time, this was just a step toward their ultimate goal, the supersonic flying saucer. How do we know about this? How do we know this is real and not a story? No one really knew. No one officially knew about this until 2012 when declassified documents showed the rumors were true, which happens all the time. How many people can you imagine who were engineers on their deathbed telling their kids, like, no, it's true, we we kind of built flying saucers. Is there a statute of limitations that allows thing to be, be, things to be declassified? Is it sort of like a copyright expiring? Or does someone just up high kind of have to say, you know what? I don't think it's a big deal anymore. People want to know. It'd probably be fun to let this out there. What, how, what do you think the protocol is? Fun. For, <laughs> yeah. Maybe not fun, but, you know, fun for the people, you know, you for know, the UFO nerds. Like, and like, give, them, give them a little something to, yeah. to, to go on. Here. I would what just start I would, <laughs> I would start by saying, while I don't know the exact parameters of that time frame, I do know that after a certain amount of time, it comes up as – it can be reviewed essentially to be declassified. Or if, it can be reclassified yes. at that point. So it is kind of like a uh, Kind of like a copyright, yeah. yeah. That's not a bad comparison because there were, there were things that came out recently regarding – or there were things up for review, excuse me, regarding the Kennedy assassination, uh, some of which were released and some of which were – reclassified That's right and the 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 problem is there the the criteria for that is is it fun that's <laughs> <laughs> number one that's the number one are we all having a good time yeah. uh number two is does this still pose a continued risk to national security or to people or uh, sorry the exposure of methods and technologies used to gain information or 
advantage. Get, a, get an edge, yeah. And that's that's such a woefully vague thing that, that happens all the time. What isn't national security? You could you could stretch that to anything. Totally. But because of this 2012 declassified mm-hmm. documentation, uh, we got to take a look for the first time at this memo that comes from 1956 that really shows what the engineers there at Avro were attempting to build, the, like the thing they wanted the end goal to be. And it gets back to a saucer-like vehicle that was capable of reaching, quote, between Mach 3 and Mach 4, a ceiling of over 100,000 feet, means, meaning it can climb all the way up to Ooh. over or around uh, over 100,000 feet and a maximum range with allowances. This is still the quote of about 1,000 nautical miles. Incredible. Wowzers. And that's, you know, that's 1956 when the memo is written. So that is the same year that Avro itself gives that $2.5 million dollars in 1956 bucks, as you said, Noel, uh, to the project. As far as we can tell, this supersonic flying saucer, again, it's weird that this is a real thing, would propel itself by rotating an outer disk at a very, very high speed, and then maneuvering would be accomplished by using small shutters on the edge of the disk. It would be powered by jet turbines, So no secret technology there. And according to the cutaway diagrams, you can see maybe four four or so digitized pictures of this. According to those cutaway diagrams, the entire thing would be able to take off and land vertically. So it would move in a way that closely resembled the movements reported of flying saucers. Can we can we just take a minute and look at this cutaway together? Because it is dang fascinating. It's really, really cool. And, and there are some things uh, that Ben and I were talking about off air before you came in, Noel. Uh, in particular, the cockpit area at the very center of this vehicle that Ben was describing is directly surrounded by four large rings of the fuel that runs the entire vehicle. So if you're sitting inside this thing, you're literally surrounded by all of the combustible stuff that is being used to run the thing. Ooh, so if you take a direct hit, you're just like, you're just, yeah. you're toast. You're sacrificing, uh, you're sacrificing durability for flexibility or agility would be a better word. Your, your main strategy is to not get hit. Well, it's like those U-boats where they had the toilets mounted right above the mm. batteries that ran the whole yep. thing. So when the toilets malfunctioned, it would like flood the batteries and cause all these problems. Uh, <laughs> just, it's sort of like, you know, you take a hit on design in order – or you take a hit maybe on safety in order to like pack more features into a thing. It's just like a video game where you can choose characters that are faster than average but weaker. Or you can choose mm. characters that are absolute tanks, but uh, very, very slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then let's let's just talk about this really fast because I was fascinated by that design, and I am nowhere near an engineer or a physicist or anything mm-hmm. like that. Sure. But you have to imagine the fuel tanks in a vehicle like this are going to be f- like fairly heavy at the beginning at takeoff, right, when you're all f- uh, fueled up. Mm-hmm. Then by the end of your mission, it's going to be – the weight at the center of the vehicle is going to be significantly reduced. It would change the handling probably, right? Well, well I, I mean, because you're, you know, literally the spinning disc part of this is what's giving you not fully propulsion, but it's what's um, stabilizing, stabilizing the craft to an yeah. effect and yeah, keeping yeah. you in the air. Um, the whole thing it, it blows my mind. Um, and I just want to hear from anybody out there listening that understands the physics of it a little better. Uh, please, please look at 
look at the uh, Project 1794 documentation and let us know. Here's a, here's a weird thing, though. It still is not clear why, to that original question one of us posed, it still isn't clear why it's taken more than 60 years for this to be declassified, especially if they didn't actually build anything other than that little Avro car prototype. But it follows on from the declassified news in 2008 that the U.S. government has been monitoring UFO activity for decades in secret, way after they said Project Blue Book was over. And furthermore, there are apparently, rumor has it, there are apparently two entire boxes of Project 1794 documents, but only only a handful of images have been digitized. Yeah, literally four that we, we were able to find in making this episode. So here's the problem. The story gets murky, right? The closest thing we have to a real prototype is that VZ-9 Avro car, and that prototype, by all accounts, was a stinker. It was originally specified for a max speed of 300 miles per hour uh, with a ceiling of 10,000 feet instead mm-hmm. of 100,000. But in practice, it never got more than three feet off the ground. Its top speed was 35 miles per hour. This, yeah, I know. Uh, and despite the Avro car's failures – which were clear and apparent, it's also clear and apparent that the U.S. government was indeed working on aircraft in the 1950s that resembled flying saucers. Suffice to say, the U.S. may have been working on flying saucers back in the 40s around the same time as the Roswell UFO incident. Now, we're, we're going – we're, we're putting some strings together here. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, you know, let's, let's presuppose that they did discover some kind of craft at Roswell. Do you think it's possible that they took a cue from some of that technology that they found if, in fact, this happened and then tried to apply it to, you know, uh, the design? Maybe, quite possibly, yeah. And this uh, – And that's why it was classified for so long, even though they knew they weren't going to pursue it anymore because it would raise these questions? Maybe a Soviet saucer crashed and then they had to make a whole dog and pony show about pretending to invent the technology on their own. It's, Mm. It's interesting and that kind of duplicity does play into international affairs. It's fascinating. It's addictive and tempting to to think of what could have been. We do have an episode where we get as close as we can to discerning the cause of of that event that's commonly called, you know, Roswell or Groom Lake. Uh, but we don't want to spoil it for you. No, and I would check highly – yeah, check it out. I would highly recommend the YouTube series that we made on that too, Ben. We did a YouTube mm-hmm. series? Wow. How time flies. Well, unlike other experimental projects of the same era, this project was fully canceled in December 1961. That leaves us with some troubling questions. Why would you pour all of this money into something just to shelve it later? There are a couple of possibilities. First one, obvious one, we could say, it just didn't work, either because our engineering ability or our technology at the time was just inadequate to solve the problems, or because the physics involved were beyond our ken as well. And again, like we were talking about earlier, we know this happens all the time with military prototypes. Oh, yeah. Like they designed a circular ship. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Terrible idea. When the guns would fire, it would shoot the ship around in circles. You know, yeah. it, was, it was somebody, some general or something, it was really hot for this idea and was high up enough in the, you know, the military that he got the dollars. But it it's was an embarrassment. Terrible idea. Terrible idea. This could very well be the case here. They don't like to admit defeat. And then, yeah, and then there was that, uh, there was that tank 
that was essentially a sphere mm-hmm. that just had three guns randomly pointing out. What? <laughs> so we, Oh, it was great. Really it was ridiculous. Great. Well, you have to earn it. You know, you have to earn these great innovations and not uh, not everything is going to be the goose that lays the golden egg. But we do know that the military pursued something like this and it's something we're all familiar with today, right? Oh, yeah. Well, we ca- we've brought it up a little bit already in the show, but helicopters. If, you're, if you want to have a vertical takeoff and landing solution, well, guess what? We got these things called helicopters. Sure. You can have bigger helicopters that have multiple propellers, right? That's right. You know, they can't do a lot of the things that the military wanted to do. Dives and such and evasive maneuvers, probably more difficult. Oh, and specifically getting as high into the atmosphere right. as oh, these yeah. vehicles or go any Anywhere near as fast as they wanted these vehicles to go. There are some fast helicopters, but nothing like that. But what helicopters did do is fix that problem that the military had, or at least the perceived problem the military had, of uh, these giant runways of their far-flung bases Mm -hmm. and needing to have defense of those bases and as well as having aircraft that could deploy quickly and, you know, go up and down quickly rather than having to take off with a big runway. So maybe they just found a compromise then, right? They said, this is what we can realistically do now. It certainly seems like it. And the timing makes a lot of sense here too, because if this, the Avro car was canceled December 1961, in early 1962, that's when the U.S. Air Force really started ramping up their training of personnel that can both fly and work on helicopters, like mechanics, essentially pilots and mechanics. Because they're like, this is the best we got. We better uh, just own it. Well, yeah, yeah, because again, it's the the Vietnam War really Mm -hmm. ramps up and that's when we we see a lot more helicopters. Another possibility, this was just one of many experiments or, or dabblings that a terrified government participated in Maybe not so much because they thought it was practical, uh, maybe more because they were hoping to keep their ideological rivals, the USSR, at bay. So many weird things come from the psychological mind games of the Cold War, you know. We experimented with psychic powers, ESP, astral travel, and we're convinced many people in the U.S., the U.S. military-industrial complex were convinced that not only were Soviet forces doing the same thing, but that they were doing it successfully. So they were like, more money. Teach that guy how to kill things with his mind. <laughs> so I've got – I've got – this is what I believe. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell you my opinion right now. I'll lay it on me. The reason why we only have four images, four pages from Project 1794 is because it – Rather than being a reaction to some Soviet uh, thing that we thought was happening, this is us trying to get the Soviet Union Ah. to spend a crap load of money trying to build one of these things because we've already got this design and it's going to do all these things. It's our psychological manipulation of them. Counterpoint, it would have to have leaked in some controllable way. They leaked it on purpose, I think, to some mole that they knew was around. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that does lead us to one one more possibility. What if this is a cover story or something like it? You know, now far be it for us to sound too out there, but it is common practice to run these games of deception. You know, tanks were were called tanks because they were originally shipped uh, under false, you know, under false pretense, false papers. They were called water tanks, 
right? And it turned out that they were these rolling weapons of mass destruction for the time. It's completely understandable that people would say there was something else to the story. We have to keep in mind, additionally, that the U.S. government and other world governments have had massive success suppressing technology in the past. Bombers, especially stealth bombers, right? We grew up in an era where they were this open secret and every so often popular mechanics would write a piece saying, oh, maybe it's true, but it's not. And it turns out they were totally true. They were totally true. And they looked insane, like nothing you would ever seen before. So metal. <laughs> you know what I mean? So black metal. <laughs> right. So in conclusion, yes, it turns out there are slash were real flying saucers. They were built here on Earth, and according to the official narratives, they were what we in the automotive world would call lemons or real pieces of <laughs> However, the U.S. government and numerous aerospace companies have again proven themselves fully capable of suppressing technology for some time. We just don't know how long that time horizon is. You know Wait, what I mean? Why do they call them lemons, guys? I don't know. Lemons are nice. What's wrong with lemons? Mmm. It's just so know. sour, maybe. It implies that there's something wrong with it. A perfectly good lemon is just, a, is just, a, it's a, it's just that. It's a lemon. According to the online etymology dictionary, no one really knows. There are, a couple, there are a couple of possibilities. Lemon used to be slang for a person who is a, quote, loser or a simpleton. Uh, they would be dumb as a lemon, I guess. And uh, then there was British pool hall slang where a lemon game was a game that was played by someone hustling you. Oh, that makes more sense to me. Yep. If it's a lemon because the idea is you bought a lemon, right? It's not what you see. It's what you get, right? Like you, you're seeing this person who's looking like something, but they're actually something else. There you go. There you go. Well, now that we went down the uh, How- etymological rabbit hole. How much do you like lemon? Do you are you somebody who just straight up eats lemons? No, but I will tell you this. Um, I bought these things. They're called superberry pills. Have you heard about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they make sour things taste sweet. Mm-hmm. So you can eat one of these pills, and it fundamentally changes the way your taste buds perceive sourness and sweetness. So you can suck on a lemon, and it tastes like sugar. I've been I've been to the taste taste hacking parties too. Those those things are pretty cool. It's an interesting experience if you haven't tried it before, especially if you have uh, some form of. Uh, gustatory synesthesia. I can only imagine what kind of colors you will see. It is completely possible that at least some of those UFO sightings back in the 40s, well before the declassified memos mention Avro, could have been attributed to similar or other related projects. What kind? I know that a lot of us listening now are saying, mention it, you guys. Don't swindle us. You have to mention it on air whenever you talk about this topic. Nazi UFOs, Nazi technology. Do you mean Sabel? <laughs> right, right. Or the Horton, right? There is compelling evidence of innovative prototypes made by the Nazi regime around that time, and we have uh, various episodes all about it. So you can check those out easily on our website, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, or YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite shows and podcasts. All, all together, though, Fact of flying saucers, we're kind of real. Yeah. Even officially, kind of real at least for a second. It makes you wonder what else is up there in the atmosphere today. You know what I mean? What do you think? Let us know. Also, let us know what you think about helicopters. Have you guys ever been in a helicopter? Only once or twice? Once. They're great. (laughs) 
Have you seen those Chinook CH-47s? Yes. Those are the twin prop yep, yep. choppers. Twin rotor, yeah. Yeah, and they were actually in development not far off from when uh, mm-hmm. this Avro deal was going on in 1957 by the Vertol company. People are trying to solve the same problem different ways. Exactly. Uh, there are also, depending on the city in which you live, there are helicopter tours. Mm-hmm. So I would say unless they're super expensive, get on one if you can. It's a great date idea. And apparently in New York now, Uber is operating helicopters where you can get an Uber helicopter to pick you up and take you to the airport. It's only about uh, the cost of a flight, you know, 250 Wow. But I'll tell you, man. It's weird flex. Taking a taking a <laughs> Lyft or an Uber to the airport in New York City is a harrowing experience. It's an endeavor, yeah. It takes a long time. People who drive regularly in New York have made their peace with the afterlife They're every, every special, time they hop in. Special yeah. kind of sadist as well. Uh, I would say kudos to you, Road Warriors. Also, and perhaps a little bit more uh, in line with today's show, let us know whether you think there is technology still being suppressed today. And if so, what? We often hear, for instance, that at least in the realm of software and algorithms, the NSA is is far ahead of what would be considered viable or ethical <laughs> in in the public commercial sphere. Yes. So what what kind of stuff do you think is out there? We're we're interested and please send any corresponding links or evidence you have. Do you think it's all a bunch of bunk? Do you think this is mass hysteria? Let us know let us know what and why. That's right. Find us on Facebook and Twitter where we're conspiracy stuff. Find us on Instagram where we're conspiracy stuff show. If you don't want to do that, leave us a message. Like we said at the top, we are 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do any of that stuff. There's more. Oh, there's more. Yeah, you can find me and Ben individually on Instagram if you so choose. I am at Brown. You can find me getting kicked into and out of various airports, countries, and regions at Ben Bolin. Astral planes? No comment. (laughs) No comment. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, so that's it. If you want to send an email to us that we will see on our phones and computers and all that stuff, just send us one to conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends. 